Father, we, we thank you for such a precious time of, of worship, Lord. And gosh, your presence was so heavy this morning. And there's just such a blessing to be here in this building with, with everyone who belongs to your kingdom. And Lord, just to feel your presence, Lord, and that your presence surrounds us as we surrender our lives to you. Father, thank you for this time that we have today. I pray that you bless those who are listening online right now on live stream, Lord. And Father, that you would just bless our time together, that we would be attentive to your word, be hearers of your word, and not just hearers, but also doers. And Lord, I decrease that you would increase, empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself, that everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind will be of you and not of me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, is today's text. For the next two Sundays, we're going to take a break from our series, Authentic, from 1 John, to focus on Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Say Palm Sunday. Are often called the triumphal entry. And what it does, it celebrates the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. It's his last public appearance, and it's just a few days before his death, and exactly one week, one week before his resurrection. So I want to set the stage for the text. It's, it's Passover, say Passover. Uh, we call it Holy Week. It's Passover, and Passover was a celebration, uh, remembering how God, say how God, delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Now, there were three feasts every Jewish person was required to be in Jerusalem for. And the first one was a a Pesach, say Pesach. That's the Passover. Again, was a celebration remembering how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. You also had the Shavuot. Say Shavuot. Come on, say Shavuot. That is what we call the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of uh, the Pentecost. And that celebrates the culmination of the Exodus at Mount Sinai. And the third feast was the Sukkot. Say Sukkot. That's the Feast of the Tabernacles. That was to remember the giving of the law and also to renew the covenant made between Israel and God. Got it? Now, now at the Passover, there were around 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem. Some say up to 3 million people in the city. And it began on a Sunday, which is what we call Palm Sunday. On the Jewish calendar, it was the 10th day of Nisan. The 10th day of Nisan. On our calendar, it would be April 6, 32 AD. April 6, 32 AD. And this is uh, the day that Jewish families would select the lamb that would be sacrificed later, later in the week for the Passover meal. Well, on this day, on Palm Sunday, the Lamb of God rode into Jerusalem and presented himself to the nation of Israel. You guys with me so far? And you see, the Jews had been looking for a Messiah. They'd been looking for a king. But in their minds, they were expecting a great military leader, one who would overthrow all of their enemies and restore Israel to its former greatness and glory. But they didn't expect, what they didn't expect was that their king would appear as a carpenter. They never expected that he would possess no weapons, no army, and no political power. Now, now listen, throughout Jesus' earthly life, they, speaking of the Jews, 
we're given evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. And he proved, Jesus proved his identity time and time again by his pedigree, also by the place of his birth, and also by his miracles and signs and wonders. And yet the Jews, they, the Jews, refused to believe that he was in fact the Messiah, the Messiah. And what comes to mind is what John said in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, he, speaking of Jesus, came unto his own, and his own did not what? Receive him, did not receive him. So in today's text, Jesus is once more about to reveal his identity to the nation of Israel, and they will be given one final opportunity to receive, recognize their king. Now, as you study the Bible, and hopefully we study the Bible and read the Bible, uh, we never read of Jesus making a public demonstration ever before until now, right? Until now. And Jesus had always tried to get his disciples and the multitudes of people to not make him known publicly. And if you read the Gospels, you'll come to realize that after the feeding of the 5,000, that the people wanted to make him king by force. But what, what Jesus did, Jesus withdrew uh, to the mountain by himself. Why? Why? Because it was not yet his what? Time. In fact, whenever Jesus healed someone, what did Jesus tell them? He says, don't tell anyone who healed you. Right? Well, in our text is the first time that Jesus makes a, a public demonstration. Why? Because it's time. Say it's time. God's timetable is now unfolding. And this is Jesus' grand entrance, the day when he is officially presented as a Messiah to the people of Israel and getting ready to go to the cross and pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. You guys with me? The title of my message today is A Different King. Say that. Say it louder. Say A Different King. Six points. If you're ready, say yes. Point number one is the preparation. Write that down. Say that. The preparation. Write that down. We're going to look at verses 1 all the way through verse 3. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, say Bethphage. In the Hebrew, that's Bethphage. It means house of unripe figs. Bethphage was a little village on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Jesus, who? Jesus sent two disciples. Now, I want to stop there. Who, who were the two disciples? Well, we don't know. They're, they're not mentioned, obviously. They're not mentioned in the text. A good guess, I, I think, would be Peter and John. And it could be them. I say that because during the same season of Passover, Luke writes in Luke 22, chapter 22, verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John to go and make preparations for them to eat the Passover. So I would tend to lean toward the fact that this would be Peter and John. Okay, so as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, verse 2, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a what? A donkey tied there with her colt. A young donkey. So you have a mama donkey and a young donkey by her. 
Untie them, both of them, and bring them to me, Jesus says. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them. Who needs them? The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, I want to point out that both Mark and Luke, in their account of this incident, say that Jesus asked them only to get a young donkey. doesn't mention about the mama donkey. You guys with me? Or in some translations, a, a colt. Uh, they don't mention that Jesus also told them to bring the mama donkey. Now, this is not a contradiction in details. Rather, Matthew simply adds more details that the other writers left out. You guys with me now? Hmm? And you see, having its mother, and I love this, having its mother nearby would calm the young donkey as he carried Jesus along the path, surrounded by crowds as they're, 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 they're singing and shouting. Now, now, Mark, interesting, Mark and Luke, Mark and Luke add a detail that Matthew didn't. And Mark and Luke add, you will find a colt, young donkey, tied there, and this is what they say that Matthew doesn't mention, which no one has ever ridden. Say, no one has ever ridden. And this is significant for two reasons, okay? First of all, it shows Jesus' divine control over animals. And I say that because to ride donkeys, they need to be broken in. Oh, they'll buck you off, right? They're wild. But Jesus had divine power, say divine power, at his disposal to do things that others could not do. The second reason would be there's some symbolism in that this donkey, and got to get this, this donkey had never been used for some other purpose. You guys with me? Its first passenger was who? Jesus. So, it was, so that's saying it was fully consecrated, this is now, made holy to Jesus and his purposes. Isn't that awesome? Brings us right in this, the second point is, number two is a prophecy. Say that. The prophecy. You had the preparations, now the prophecy. We look at verses four through five. This took place to what? Fulfill, say fulfill, what was spoken through the prophet. I want to stop there. It was declared by God's prophet that it would happen in a specific way long before it happened. And at the right time, say the right time, because that's key. At the right time, it happened exactly as promised. Everything occurred by God's unseen hand, listen, so that Jesus could make himself clearly known to those who sought him, and so that nothing was left, nothing was left undone of any of God's promises. Verse, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king, say king, comes to you gentle, and listen to what he says, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew just quoted, Matthew just quoted Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You got to love that, right? Now listen, this prophecy was given 500 years before this event. And by the way, let me say this. There are 330 prophecies of the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So here we see prophecy, what was being fulfilled. I want to say this. Jesus did this both as a deliberate fulfillment of prophecy and as a demonstration of the character, say character, of his kingdom. In other words, it was a spiritual kingdom, not a military kingdom. You guys got that? Jesus came in peace and love, 
not war. You got it? And my son Joan alluded to that at the end of worship, right? Now I want to point this out, that Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey affirmed his messianic royalty and his humility. Jesus entered with humility and with appropriate dignity. Now, now why a donkey? Why a donkey? Well, if you read history and know the Bible, kings rode, kings rode horses in times of war. And most of you guys know that. When they were fighting a battle or had a victory through a battle, they would come on a white horse, a white horse. But in times of peace or offering of peace, kings would come in riding on a donkey. So this shows that Jesus' appearance, and you got to get this, this shows that Jesus' appearance was not a political appearance. Say it was not political. Jesus is not there to take anything over. He's not. Okay, he, he's not there to fight. Why? Okay, well, but he didn't come on a white horse. Why? Because he came on a donkey. Why? Because Jesus came in peace. Because he's a prince of peace. He came to offer them peace for their lives. And we know Isaiah 9-6, prophetic of this, says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to say this. Here in the text is Jesus at his first coming on a donkey, offering salvation, bringing terms of peace. First coming. Say first coming. But at his second coming, Jesus will come on a white horse. Say white horse. To make war. You guys with me? And to stop the rebellion against God that will take place during that period of time. Now, I want to I confirm this and affirm this by giving you this scripture, Revelation chapter 19. Write it down. I'm going to read it to you. 19, verses 11 through 16. Yes, we know that Jesus came, his first coming on a donkey in peace, but his second coming, Jesus is coming. Jesus, don't play. Amen? And it says this, I saw, and John writes this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, listen what, listen what it says, with justice, say justice, he judges and wages war. God is a fair judge. Amen? Judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, now, now you got to get this, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, now get this. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Jesus had a tat on his thigh. Just saying. So I want you to follow me here. 
at his first coming, he was to make atonement for our sins, right? But his second coming will be to judge and to make war and to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. At his first coming, he wore no crowns. But at his second coming, he will wear many crowns. At his first coming, the clothes and the palms of the cheering crowds were thrown before him. But at his second coming, he will wear a robe dipped in blood. At his first coming, crowds of people went before him and behind him. But at his second coming, he will be accompanied by the white-robed armies, us, of heaven. At his first coming, he came to his own people to be struck down, but at his second coming, he will come to strike the nations and rule them with the rod of iron. At his first coming, he, Jesus, went to the city of Jerusalem, and they announced him as Jesus, the prophet from the town of Nazareth of Galilee. But at his second coming, he will be called by the name, the word of God, and bear the title, King of King and Lord of Lords. Good place to say amen. Amen. I also want to point out that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on that day wasn't a coincidence. Rather, it coincided exactly with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Listen, the coming of the Messiah as prophesied by Daniel was also fulfilled in Jesus' triumphal entry. And I want to tell you, if, if the Jews had been wise in rightly dividing the word of God, they would have known that their Messiah would, be, would show up on this very, very day. So as we see the text unfold, friends, we see God sovereignly orchestrating, say orchestrating, every single detail. God is a God of detail. Amen. So we see prophecy here, and we see the details that God has here, and we're seeing unfold before our very eyes. So, so with that being said, here's a lesson. God is in control. I mean, friends, if God is sovereignly orchestrating every single de detail, as we see in the text and throughout the Word of God, He's in control. And I want to tell you, some of you need to hear this, because right now, things in your life might seem out of control. Things might not be working out as you have planned or desired. Now, now if you're saved, say amen. If you're saved, I want to tell you, your life is not out of control. It's not, friends. It, it's in complete, perfect control. Well, how do we know that? Romans 8.28, some of you are very familiar with this verse, it's a powerful verse. It's to encourage us and remind us that God himself is in control. His purposes will be fulfilled in our lives. And we know that. And we know, say, and we know that in all things, right, not some things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his what? Purpose. So let's break that down because I want to encourage you here this morning. And we know, say, we know. That's what we call the confidence, the certainty this is the truth that you and I can hold on to. And we know, say that in all things, that's the completeness, the completeness, not some things, not just good things, not just bad things, but in all things, even in sickness, even in death, in pain. And we know that in all things, God works, say God works, 
That's the cause. The cause. He's the cause. God, listen now, is the one who is at work. He's the one working on your behalf, on, on my behalf. So there's no need for us to worry, no need for us to fear. You see, he's there at the beginning. He's there in between. He's there at every point. He's there at the end. He's there at work on your behalf. He's there at work on my behalf. In your pain, in my pain, in your disappointment, in my disappointment, in your circumstances, and my circumstances, God is there. It's not by chance, not luck. No, it's God at work. Amen? And we know the confidence that in all things, completeness, God works the cause for the good. Say for the good. The comfort. This is not saying that suffering, tragedy, and evil is good. But that God works it all out for the good. Then he says this, Romans 8, 28. Of those who love him, say those who love him who have been called according to his what? The condition. The condition. The confidence, completeness, cause, comfort, the condition. That's the condition for this promise. It's for believers. This is for believers. So if you're a believer, things in your life are not out of control. God is in control. He rules your life. He rules my life. He rules the universe with his feet up. Chilling. He's never stressed, never caught off guard. God doesn't freak out. Amen? So you can trust him. And I told someone just the other day, trusting God is not always easy, but it's necessary. Amen? Number three, the participation. Write that down, the participation. Preparation, prophecy, participation, verses 6 through 7. The disciples went and did they did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. So we know this, the two disciples didn't have a proper saddle for Jesus, right? To sit on and as he rode this young donkey. So they what? They did as Jesus told them to do. They, went, they got the donkey, right, the colt, and they put their own garments on the animal, for Jesus to sit on. They, here's a lesson, two lessons, here's a lesson. Obey Jesus. I mean, you got to think about this now. At this time in their life with Jesus, they should obey Jesus. I mean, they saw Jesus do all these miracles, right? Jesus, go and get this donkey, this colt. Do as I ask you to do. So, hey, no questions, man. We're going to do what we've seen you do some amazing things. So we're going to obey you, Jesus. Do what he says. What is, what is the Lord Jesus Christ what has he commissioned you to do? And the question is, are you doing it? Has he called you to do something for his kingdom, for his purposes? Are you doing it or are you just sitting down doing nothing about it? We are to obey him. Obey him. The second lesson is this. Jesus wants to use us. Amen? Now I want to say this. Jesus doesn't need us. You guys with me? I know that might surprise some of you, okay? Jesus is a non-contingent being. Non-contingent being. In other words, he's, he's independent. Jesus doesn't need anyone or anything. He doesn't need us. 
But thank God, amen, he desires to use us. And I'm thankful for that. In his sovereignty and in his grace, he has given you and I the privilege of being used, listen now, for his kingdom purposes. And we saw these two disciples being used by God. He used them. God wants to use you. He's gifted you. He's given you gifts and abilities for his kingdom purposes. You guys with me? He wants to use you. Are you being used? Are you serving with the gifts he's given you? You guys with me? Number four, the parade. Say that. The parade. And what they do here is they have this parade and they're preparing his path. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their what? Cloaks on the road. Now, now I want to stop there. This is similar to giving someone the red carpet treatment. And it seems to be something appropriate to do for a king, right? Here comes the king, right? But spreading, I want to say this, but spreading the robes to the ground could also be a gesture of reverence. Say reverence. Indicating their willingness, I love this, listen, their willingness for him to have everything. You get that? A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's referring to palm branches because John 12, 13, John 12, 13 says they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, why palm branches? Why? Well, the palm tree was often seen as a symbol of Israel. Also, it was a symbol of strength, a symbol of resilience, of beauty, of prosperity, but it became a symbol of joy and victory as well. Say joy. Say victory. And the Jews, the Jews had a saying. If a man takes palm tree branches in his hands, we know that he is victorious. And it's like the people are welcoming their victorious king, king of the Jews. So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? Throw down our garments and palm branches. Throw down our garments and palm branches. Let me say this. As Jesus comes to each of us in our daily lives, we must be willing to lay everything down before him. Throwing everything down in our lives for him. And we must lay down the palm branches of our hearts and let him journey through as our victorious king. So let me ask you this. Are we laying, are we laying everything before him? Lord, here's my life. It's yours. I, I, I reverence you. I trust you. As you journey through my life, Lord, I will exalt you as my victorious king. That others around me would see that I am a follower of your kingdom. If you're saved, say amen. And I say it because our challenge today is to, is to live as we believe, right? Our challenge is to walk the talk. Our challenge is to practice what we preach, right? Our challenge is to stop running our own lives and allow Jesus, the King, to rule and reign in our hearts. Question, is he? 
Or are you still holding on to something? You're not willing to throw it at his feet. Are we allowing him to be everything in our lives? Number five is the praise. Say the praise. And they proclaim his praises. Look at verse 9. You guys still with me? The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, say shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the what? Now notice there were two groups, one ahead of Jesus and the other behind Jesus. This is what they call an antiphonal chant. And, and, and it went like this. The first group would say, Hosanna to the Son of David. The second group would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the first group would go back and say, Hosanna in the highest. So they go back and forth, back and forth, antiphonal chant. And by the way, Hosanna in Hebrew means save us now. Say save us now or save now. The phrase to the son of David is the crowd recognizing Jesus as a rightful heir to the throne of David. You see, they greeted Jesus with words, and I love this from the Messianic Psalm found in Psalm 118, verses 25. 26, and I'll read that to you. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. So ready for the lesson? Here we go. Here's the lesson. Jesus is worth celebrating. Hey, it's right there, right? Some Christians, some Christians need to be reminded that Jesus is worth celebrating. Right? You know, I often think, you know, I'm not saying that you got to be jumping up and down and going nuts and crazy like that, but there ought to be some passion in your life. Because I know some believers, I know some believers, I'm just saying, that celebrate and shout and passion about their football, baseball teams, hockey teams, you name it. But in church, some look like just they're sucking on lemons or something, they look sour. Jesus is worth celebrating. Amen? So celebrate him. Now hearing the crowd giving praises to Jesus sounds really promising, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're, we're just, hey, that's awesome. They're, they're praising him. It sounds promising, except a few days later. A few days later, many, many of the people in the same crowd are going to be the ones that will shout out, crucify him. Crucify him. Now keep in mind the reason they went or they would go from Hosanna to crucify him is because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. They were still looking for a political deliverer. They, they greeted him as a king, but the Jews were ignorant of the nature of his kingship. And they just looked at Jesus as a potential nationalist leader. Now, now he's the king, right? Say, say Jesus is the king. He's the king, but he's a different king. Amen? You see, Jesus wants to save them, but in a different way. Instead of wiping out the Romans, 
Jesus is going to wipe out the greater threat, and that is the penalty of their sins. Amen? But unfortunately, as you read the story, you know the story, unfortunately and sadly, they didn't want deliverance from their sins. They wanted deliverance from Rome. They wanted a physical deliverance from the yoke and the bondage of Roman oppression. They didn't want a Messiah who would be the Lord of their hearts, one who would win their love by laying down his own life, and one who would then, by the worthiness of who he is, require all of their worship and adoration as God. They didn't want that. Sad, isn't it? They didn't want that. What they wanted was a powerful, conquering Messiah who would exalt them and place them up above all of the people of the earth. They wanted Jesus, but they wanted Jesus on their terms. So here's the lesson. All or nothing. All or nothing. All or nothing. It is so like us to want Jesus in our life, right? And we should, right? I want Jesus. We say, I want Jesus in my life. We're believers. Amen. However, to want him only upon our terms at times. To want Jesus in the image in which we fashion him. And I've learned very quickly that the Christian life is not based on my terms or your terms. It's based on his terms. What do you want, Jesus? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to serve, Lord? It's based on his terms. It's either all or nothing. All or nothing. Amen? Number six, and we're almost going to close here, is the perplexity. Say perplexity. Write that down. We'll look at verses 10 through 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, what? Stirred and asked, who is this? They're perplexed. Who is this? In verse 11, the crowds answered, the ones there, the crowd said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You see, see, their understanding about Jesus was confused and inadequate. They were thousands of Passover pilgrims jamming the streets of the city of Jerusalem, and many of them, many of whom had come from a distance, even from, from foreign lands, who would not know as much about Jesus. You guys with me? So they asked the other crowd, well, who is this Jesus? And some of those in the crowd with basic information, understanding, described Jesus as a prophet, say prophet, from Nazareth in Galilee. So, so listen, they could not yet fully understand that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. That Jesus was the Savior who would die for their sins. That Jesus was God in the flesh. Instead, this group pictured Jesus as a powerful prophet like those in the Old Testament who did great miracles and delivered messages from God. So I want you to follow me here. The response that Jesus was a prophet, they said that, right? From Nazareth indicated unbelief in his Messiahship. They just viewed Jesus as a prophet. That's it. Not the Son of God. Not God in the flesh, not their legitimate king. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. And you see, Jesus came for his coronation as King Jesus. But Israel formally rejected him as Messiah King. So let's wrap this up. All that's been said, who do you say Jesus is? They were perplexed. 
Not clear who he was. Some just say he's a good, he's a prophet. Who do you say Jesus is? Just, just a prophet like, like, like they did? Oh, he's, Jesus is a wise teacher. You know, he, he's, he's a moral teacher. He's an historical figure. Jesus is, you know, he's just a, a philosopher or, or people say a miracle worker or he's an enlightened man. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus is Savior. God in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Redeemer. Jesus is Deliverer. Jesus is our King. Amen? That's who Jesus is. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you.